Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to today's Dunn Solutions podcast, where we're committed to providing cutting-edge industry knowledge for the building contractor and trade professional. Today, we'll hear from our good friend Mark LaLiberté with Construction Instruction. Mark has been educating our industry in the area of building science for over 30 years and speaks to over 8,000 people annually. In this podcast, he'll answer the big question, what is building science and why should you care? Mark will also cover the following, the top five things everyone should have on the radar going forward, the features and benefits that today's clients are finding value in, and he will also share some great advice on how to differentiate your business from the competition without using price as a weapon. If you have questions for Mark or would like to access his building resources, please go to constructioninstruction.com. And to attend a future product information breakfast with Dunlumber, you can email me at jimc at dunlumber.com. Good morning, everybody. As you know, this is an interesting uh, venue for us to try to have good, clear communication. So I'll do my very best to talk loud. If you do uh, want to, there's chairs up here and you could sit in the aisle if you wanted to, but really trying, I'll try my best to uh, enunciate and be clear. And I also have a tendency to talk kind of fast, so I will try to be a, a little bit better about that. I just have one speed, which is full, and yes, I've had coffee this morning, um, which is risky. Um, I've been teaching building science and building physics for 30 years. I travel about 200,000 air miles a year. So every week I'm someplace. Last week I was in North Carolina, in Portland, in uh, um, Calgary, and Toronto uh, in in a week. So I get a chance to walk job sites, see projects, work with companies, see the code stuff, and really try to, as best I can, share what we're seeing and what the challenges are. Um, All of us don't have enough time, most of us, to share ideas and strategies about where our market's going, the challenges that we face, other than in a very close group. Sometimes at our, H, at our builder meetings, at our remodeling meetings, whatever those are, there's rarely a chance for us to really share that. So today, I hope it's an opportunity so that if an idea comes up, a concept that you like to talk about, say, you know what, I've heard about this, it's making me nuts. This is something I don't really understand. I don't really agree with it. I got code people pushing, so, what, what do you think about that? I'll at least share that with you. We'll also talk a little bit about this whole idea about green and energy efficiency and the challenges that those kind of decisions can make in relationship to the success and failure of a building. Also, we're all about our clients in the end, making sure that our clients appreciate and understand what differentiates you from somebody else, how you look at a project in relationship to what their project's doing, how's their house performing, how are they performing, how are things, what are their expectations. Sometimes we don't spend enough time understanding people's expectations either. Where have you been in relationship to what you're currently experiencing in your house or your project? And how could I help you solve that problem? How could I help you enhance your lifestyle in that particular project? Not very often do we get a chance to do that. So today is really that goal to do that. Please feel free to ask any question at any time. Raise your hand. We'll do our best to to, uh, make sure I get to you. Um, The other pieces that we have here is um, a little bit about the changing code. We'll talk about that briefly. Most of you are aware that in the state of Washington, the 2012 code was adopted and brought into into play an idea about buildings getting um, more energy efficient and tighter and uh, ventilation and how how that fits. When Washington adopted the 2012 code, they made a few modifications to it. In your climate, the modifications that were made here said that the houses, um, uh, the, for your climate relationship, the houses were supposed to be blower door and pressure tested by a blower door to about three uh, air changes per hour at 50 pascals. That was the original recommendation in, it was written in the code for 2012 for your climate zone. 
The modification that happened here was to say that was going to be a little difficult to do. Trying to get to, to three was a little too hard, and they made the requirement here in, in Washington State five air changes per hour at 50 pascals. So that requirement said they eased up the expectations on tightening up structures. So those are some modifications. Um, thermal enhancements to walls. The idea in the 2012 code, if we looked at kind of where the country is trying to go, is to say where can we add energy efficiency to our buildings? In the U.S., um, about 70% of all energy used in this country is used in buildings. So if we found an opportunity to say, is there any way or anything we could do to reduce the overall demand of energy, both on the infrastructure of our country, uh, uh, power plants, and the challenge of producing power, distributing power, keeping those things in play, you're very fortunate in the Pacific Northwest to have fairly low power costs when you have uh, uh, you know, um, hydro generation. Um, there's also other ways of generating power, but the challenges are that um, when those variables occur, um, it's kind of important that we as a country discuss how we could be more energy efficient. So is energy efficiency, I would agree, is important. Do you kind of agree? Yeah. 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 I think it also adds another thing to this. Energy efficiency does something else. It adds this level of comfort. Today's home buyers, homeowners, and all of you have a different set of expectations today than you used to. I grew up and spent a good share of my life in Minnesota. When I was cold in the winter, I would sit over by the heat register, right? I didn't call the contractor, hey, a little cold in here. He'd say, go sit by the heat register, right? In the summer, when I grew up in Minnesota, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's always, it's a little bit hot, fairly humid, um, and uh, we didn't have air conditioning when I grew up, so if you were hot, you sat in front of a fan and waited till September, right? There's a whole set, different set of expectations. Today, because I can sit in my car and me and my and, uh, spouse sit there and then we can dial up the temperatures. She's at uh, 68 and I'm at, at uh, 71. Is that right? So is there an expectation there that I can have my climate zone at the comfort level I want? And something that happens in your car, should that be something that could also happen in your house? And is that a fair expectation? We have to define whether that's fair or not. Yeah. But the, <clears throat> the idea is that regardless of whether you think it's fair, it is the expectation. So how do you help manage some of those characteristics? So changing codes are trying to define a little bit more than what it used to. <clears throat> Originally, codes was about electrical safety and structural. Make sure the roof doesn't fall on your head, right? And now, thanks to Simpson, the most powerful lobbyist on the planet, you have a fastener for everything, right? <clears throat> So now we have uh, an amazing array of fasteners that collect, uh, uh, sync everything down really well. So in case Rainier decides to do something, we're all going to be fine. We're going to go like this and go, that's awesome. Nothing happened, right? So I, I think the expectation there is that if we look at code and its function is to really drive that, we're seeing these new codes drive energy efficiency and building tightness. We're also watching in, in Washington State another important thing that code's trying to dabble with, and that's the flashing and water management. Now, that's what I always struggle with here. Do you think in a state and a region like you're in, we should be extraordinary experts at managing rain and water? We should be so incredibly good at that that we don't need anybody to tell us how to do that. And I still go to job sites all over the place and see reverse flashing, details that cause us problems. The number one cause for litigation in our industry, 80% of building litigation, is caused by the mismanagement of water. So how do we not fix that, right? Because that's a big deal. How do we make sure that we do things that really integrate the fact that as we improve thermal performance of buildings, does that change the way in which they behave with relationship to water? In other words, 
old, poorly insulated buildings allowed themselves to dry pretty quickly by having a fairly direct exchange of energy. So once I improved the air tightness of the structure, and I improved the thermal performance of the wall, it's less forgiving, requiring me to put a much more robust effort into managing water. That's the physics and the math behind it. I don't care if you don't like that. It's like saying gravity pisses you off. It's like, I know, right? I've gotten just a little shorter in my age, but I think the point is, well, how do the physics connecting ourselves to our buildings matter? Because if is there anything that you're, a homeowner could do, let's say they want to do a kitchen remodel. Is there anything a homeowner could do in a kitchen remodel that could put themselves and you at risk? A kitchen remodel. Is there anything they could do? You'd say, of course. They're going to pick, let's say, they say, um, you know what? We've been walking, watching the cooking channel a lot, and we're amazing at cooking right now. We're amazing. <laughs> we, bought a, we bought a box of pans online. They're incredible, right? And so uh, we're going to start cooking a lot more. So what we want is a six, no, let's, let's get eight burners. Um, and then what we want is uh, this thing over the top. It's, uh, it's what they call it, um, super sucker. Yeah, I want one of them because I'd be able to pull a cat off the floor at high speed. I want, I want one of them. So we go, you want a six burner, super sucker. I, I can do that. I've got a guy who knows a guy. They're going to then send, a, you're going to send the homeowner over to the range fan store. And the guy's going to say, hey, come here. I want, I want to show you something. Because if you get this one, your friends will laugh at you. I want to show you something. I was at a range stand for, fan store and a guy did this. Takes a cookie sheet, turns the thing on high speed, goes, watch this. Whammo. He's like, that's awesome. So the, the homeowner goes, I want that. Right? That's cool. I'll show my friends that. So, so if you think about that, does that put the building at risk? Of course it does. Depressurizes the building at a rate much greater than the building can, can make it up. The rules of physics are really clear about this. Every cubic foot of air you exhaust out of the building has to be replaced immediately by the exact same quantity, entering the building through the path of least resistance. So you go, so what are those paths? Um, I'm thinking the fireplace, the chimney, the crawl space, and the attic are awesome makeup air locations. And I'm sure everybody's cool with that, um, and that should be fine. In the discussion point, though, about the, the guy that's selling the range fan stuff, is he talking to the buyer about that? No. I, in 1994, I was working at the University of Minnesota Mechanical Engineering Group, and we said, had the range fan manufacturers come in. And they sat down and we said, so what are you guys doing about large capacity exhaust in residential buildings? They said, well, what matters to us is how it's installed. How it affects the rest of the building is not of our concern. Like, awesome. That's awesome. So uh, what we need to do here then is probably create a code, right? Because that's the answer to everything is set past another law, is to say, why don't we pass a code that says, if you exhaust more than 400 cubic feet of air in a building with sealed combustion, you're going to have to make up the air. Does that sound fair? That's good old-fashioned math. It doesn't matter if we think it's fair. That's the math. This capacity of exhaust in this particular structure, exceeding this amount, will put people at, at risk. So carbon monoxide, I would say, is a fairly significant risk. Those kind of connections are things that we have to understand as an industry. When the homeowner comes to you and says, hey, I picked the big fan, you're like, that's awesome. Um, but here's what we're going to have to do. I'll need to install a makeup air system that provides makeup air and conditions it back into the building at the same rate, and we'll have to install that as well as the fan. No, no I, I don't want that thing. I just want the big fan. And you're going to say, well, here's the catch. I can't install the big fan without providing the makeup air, which you weren't told about when you bought the fan. But it's my responsibility because I don't want your family at risk. Because they could be at risk, and here's why. 
So your options are, could we get a little bit of smaller fan that does a great job with a good capture hood to reduce the capacity, which would make that a little less expensive? How does that sound? Is that our job as professionals? That's our job, is to say, we're going to take all of the aspects of putting together a building and make sure that our skill set is to say, we're the, we're the doctors. You wouldn't go to a doctor and say, you're about ready to have a procedure, thinking about it, you go online, you read a bunch of stuff, and you go, you know what you got to do at this next surgery? I was looking online, and there's a site, and I think you should do it this way. Right? The guy's going to go, that's awesome, but you know, if I did that, you're going to die. So um, how about if we do it my way? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do it your way. As building science professionals, which is what all you have to be and which all of you are, we have to make sure that we're understanding their expectations. So by saying, tell me a little bit about what you're after, tell me a little bit about what we're trying to accomplish here, not about price, but about understanding their needs. Then what we do is we distill that down and say, well, it looks like the things you're trying to accomplish, the things that we're gonna need, in order for me to get you an accurate price and to make sure it's safe, healthy, durable, and efficient, I'm going to have to put together a few things. So let's get back to that and find out what that is. Do you think we do a good enough job of that? And sometimes we'll get a plan and somebody goes, can you give me a bid on it? And you're, uh-huh. You're like, oh, really? Are you ready for that? Yeah. I'm just going to give a number and then they're going to tell me I'm too high. So then we'll negotiate later. Like that's a phenomenal strategy. So I, I think in, as a whole, what I'm trying to advocate here is that if we look at what codes are trying to do, are codes ever the pinnacle of performance? They're technically supposed to be what? The minimum. The minimum. They're kind of the bottom. It's like, I got to code. You're like, awesome. <laughs> That's how you get a CO, right? So the catch is going to be, how do I look at what code's asking me? Now, are some codes ahead of things? Sometimes they are, aren't they? Sometimes we're seeing code things like air tightness in buildings. Is air tightness kind of a pretty big thing? Is somebody stipulating the fact that you have to get five air changes per hour on every building and using a blower door to determine the tightness of the building, would you say that's a pretty powerful statement towards tightness? I think it is. I think it's saying you have to verify how tight the building is. Um, we're seeing some markets where builders are actually trying to compete on getting the numbers lower. Have you ever heard anybody lower than five air changes at 50 pascals? Anybody heard that any tighter? You guys got people in your marketplace hitting three, hitting two, hitting one. In Minnesota, the air tightness, average air tightness of buildings in Minnesota is 1.5 air changes per hour at 50. So five is a goal, piece of cake, right? You can do that on a weekend, right, with a caulk gun. So the idea is to say, what does building tightness do for me? Does it reduce air infiltration? Does it reduce energy use? Does it improve air indoor environments? Does it reduce uh, infiltration of water into buildings? So understanding what that's trying to achieve is important. So that's part of the idea about what code's affecting us and how it can positively or potentially negatively affect our clients. How important is that do you think that we know all of that? It's a pretty big deal. And I think that trying to find a way to do that, kind of what our objective is today, when, when I talk to Jim and Jake and, and, and Mike Dunn, the, the team at Dunn Lumber, they're really concerned about making sure that they're providing answers and solutions to say, if you come and you want to have an answer to that problem, say, I'm, I'm looking at an answer to this, and could you help me with that? That's what they want to try to provide. So that's one of our goals. Um, a couple other things that I was going to talk about a little bit, we, we discussed this a bit, was flashing. Now, I'm still going out to job sites. I was at uh, uh, large job sites yesterday, uh, national builders, great big projects developments, uh, both here and in, uh, in south of Tacoma, and I saw some pretty, pretty sloppy flashing, some pretty poor detailing, and I'm still surprised at that. 
And I think that part of this is to say, how do we understand what our expectations are? So we'll talk a little bit about that. First, if I said, do windows, I always have to be careful with this because people get mad at me. Do windows have the potential to leak? Well, isn't that careful? How'd I do? Is that pretty good? Yeah. I tried to phrase that really nicely so the window guy goes, really? Really? You're going to go there? So let's think about it this way. When I put a window in, regardless of brand or type, what are the chances that after opening and closing, uh, weather, wind, temperature, variations in material performance, what are the chances that eventually that window will leak to the sill? And the perception is that it's going to go out the weep holes, which is not where it's leaking. What are the chances it's going to get to the sill and drip back into the wall? Happens all the time. It's high. You do remodeling jobs, how many times do you pull apart siding, pull apart some stucco, pull off some brick and say, the failure happens right at the corners and I'm seeing the underside of the whole area below the sill is rotted out. So us as an industry, especially in the remodeling business, we're so much better at changing that because we see the cause and effect. The fact that they're still not happening means you guys have job security. <laughs> this is still going on today, right? So the idea that's happening amazes me. So if I looked at a window and said, so if it, when it leaks, uh, when the leak occurs, window guys always push back and say, it's not the window that leaks, it's the installation. I'm like, well, I hate to break the news to you, but it's a little of both. Is that fair? Now, how critical is installation? That's huge. But isn't installation about everything? It doesn't matter what you put together. Whatever product that you buy, whether it's cladding or framing or anything else, everything is about the installation of the product. Where do you get that information? How about our labor set today? How well is our labor uh, really keeping up with growth? Is there any problems with the labor set? We got huge issues. Nationwide, no matter where I go, I'll see signs, framers needed, framers wanted. I'm on a project yesterday. Lumber packs are being dropped, and there's nobody to frame them. I had a builder tell me, he goes, you know, I'm thinking about getting a Greyhound bus, driving up to North Dakota, and picking up a few people. So that's a great strategy, because of course they'd be skilled and trained at the ability to frame buildings. Um, the challenge is that we really have a, 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 a knowledge gap. How many of you would say you learned your craft from an old guy? Anybody? I learned framing from an old guy. Anybody else? Yeah. So the idea about how we translate and transfer that information of our knowledge base to everybody that we work with is important. How many times because of this ridiculous thing here, right? Does this help control more of our day than we would prefer? Some of us are getting emails, we're always on the phone, text messaging, getting all that stuff done. Are we spending enough time training and educating the people that we work with, learning their skill sets and making sure that you add value? Are we doing that? Training that next batch of people that will actually add value to your business. And I just want to encourage you on that side of things, that as we install things, put windows in openings, we have to make sure that we stop long enough. I've had a guy goes, oh, I've been installing windows for 20 years. I got this. I'm like, well, I just looked at it. You basically suck at it. So how about we try my way, right? <laughs> so I think the premise is that when you put a window in a hole, you want to set it on a slightly sloped sill, just a little bit of a pitch to it, right? Because the, the water doesn't know which way to go. I don't know if it goes in or goes out, it's going to be based on when it hits the sill, it goes which way, whichever way it's pitched. So do you think we could get an eighth of an inch forward pitch under all windows? Eighth of an inch forward pitch. Now, I've got a builder I work with in, uh, in uh, Salt Lake City, Paul Magleby, phenomenal builder. He said, I've got all my framing crews trained to make sure that underneath that, that sill, they cut the cripples with a slight bevel um, of an eighth of an inch to the outside. He goes, all my guys nailed it, they got it. I had another builder I talked to about that, he goes, if I told my framers to do that, all of the studs would have an eighth inch <laughs> on the outside. 
So that would look kind of funky, wouldn't it? How the house got tipped on. So I said, okay, let's try something else. So he said, um, I said, well, how about if this? How about if we took a beveled piece of cedar and we put it at the base underneath the window, and when we set the window, it had a slight bevel to it, so when we pan flashed the opening, it would be sloped to the outside. That could work. How about if we set the window? We took a hammer and hit the, inside, the back inside edge inside the house and tipped it just a little bit, took a cedar shim and drove it in at the crippled sill interface, snapped it off with that, give us a slight outboard pitch. We have the technology. Okay? <laughs> So the premise here is to say, if I need to have a slightly sloped sill, so next call a, call, to, call to business. How do I now make sure that when the water gets to the sill, it doesn't sit on the wood or run between the sheathing and the sill? How do I make sure that I pan flash the base so that when the window gets installed, it then can hit the sill, hit the draining plate, and then run to the outside? Do we know how to do that? And that's a function of business for sure. I was on job sites yesterday, and the window was caulked on all four sides and stuck into the opening. Mike, that's awesome. Because when it leaks, it will leak into the wall because it has no place else to go. You never caulk the bottom fin of a window ever. Because if you do, you've trapped everything there. So you're going to say, so that means that when I have a slightly sloped sill, I'm going to put the window in, caulked it on three sides. I'm going to install it in the opening. And then I'm going to go back to the inside. I'm going to back dam and caulk the inside edge using backer rod or a good quality sealant to now secure the interior. So when the water hits the sill, it can't go in the house, can't get to the, the, uh, the drywall or the MDF or whatever else the trim is there. It runs back to the outside onto my drainage plane. That's how you install windows. Okay? Do I need to codify that or is that fundamental, good old-fashioned understanding business? So the last thing we need to do is bring that idea to Olympia. Because if we do, what they'll do is they'll have the windows tipped to the inside and then installed upside down, right? <laughs> So um, I, I think the goal here is how do we as a group really appreciate that? That's the fundamentals of installing a window. You would then seal the edges, not with nail-on flashing. I see a lot of that. Comes on a roll, and all it is is a piece of plastic on a roll. We take that, we smack it on the wall, and go, there you go, I just made it wider. Like, what's it sticking to? It's not, it's nailed-on. If you're going to put on flashing, you want to secure the nailing fin to the weather-resistant barrier, whatever that is. So then you're going to make sure that you're going to seal the sides and then the head, have all the layers flashed down and lapped. Um, who's a really good person at mechanical layering in our business? Is it the roofer? The roofer's kind of got that figured out, right? Do you ever try to minimize penetrations in the roof if you can? Why would you ever try to minimize penetrations? You're like, well, because they leak, right? So when, you, when they leak, when do you see them? Right away. You look up and you go, ah, there's a leak. Right away. So if we're trying to minimize penetrations, when you do have a penetration, how well and carefully do you seal it? You take a rubber, a boot with an angular head boot on it, it's got a little rubber collar on it, we slide that over, we interlace it, make sure it's all layered properly to make sure it doesn't leak. Now, so that's how we're doing with the roof. Now I'm gonna take this and turn it into a vertical roof. Now, how many penetrations can you put in a wall? And you would say as many as possible, right? So when I have a penetration in the wall, how do I manage those? You ever see anybody just take a, a we, we, we call, a, electricians are awesome, but the, any electricians in here? I always have to be careful. <laughs> um, so electricians use a thing called a hammer drill. I don't know if you've seen those. It's a 22-ounce straight claw, uh, and it acts, acts as both a hammer and a drill at the same time. It's amazing. You ever seen it? Yeah. So I see the guy kind of smack, do the little hole smack, uh, pulls the wire through, and there's a guy, the whole guy, uh, he shows up to take care of that. He has a little OSB patching kit. He blends up a little slurry and makes sure everything's going to be okay, R right? 
So how many trade bases think about the wall the way you would think about the roof? You wouldn't have the plumber stand up on the roof with his heel and smash it through the roof deck, run a vent pipe through and go, should be good. <laughs> right? Do you ever see people making square holes for round pipes? I still have a hard time with that one. They actually make bits similar to the size. It's amazing. It's a, <laughs> it's a new tool. There. So I, I look at this overall process and say if 80% of building related failures and litigation is caused by the mismanagement of water, we as a group have to do a much better job of char those characteristics. So penetrations and walls get booted and flashed. That's critical. Windows get flashed properly and drained to the exterior. Those are fundamentals that we should be extraordinary at, not waiting for Olympia to make it a code. Whatever we do today, as we thermally improve buildings and reduce their air leakage, requires us to do a better job of managing rain and water. Now we look at the weather resistant barrier we put on the building. Old world stuff has been amazing. Let's just tack up black paper because it should be fine. It says 60 minute paper. Ever seen that labeled on a product? So what does 60 minutes mean? That's right, it'll float for 60 minutes. Awesome. Does it ever rain here longer than 60 minutes? Not this year, I know. You guys are like, no, we're good, we're good. Um, and what it means is in 60 minutes it loses all water repellency, and the next word on there says paper, so we're pretty clear about what it's made out of. We're all incredibly nostalgic because we rip off buildings that had old paper on them that were 50 years old, that was asphalt impregnated cotton. And because it's black, and anything that's got that color to it that comes off a roll would also be the same, right? And it ain't. Don't wrap your houses in black paper. If you're going to thermally improve the building, add air tightness to the structure, and put uh, sheathing on your buildings made out of a product called um, OSB. Yeah. So if you're going to use products sensitive to water, don't use that. It's a bad idea to use a product that no longer works. So I had a guy yesterday who goes, well, how about if I put two layers? That's awesome, because <laughs> then two layers will help it last two times as long. Right? So they have two, lower, two layers that come on the roll. So they come on the roll with two layers. Did you know what the code says? Is you can't put them on top of each other because that's not two layers. You have to put one layer on, flash everything to it, put another layer on, and that sounds like a lot of work. Does anybody do that? You're like, no. I was at a job site, the guy goes, yeah, we always uh, interface all the layers. I go, no, 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 you don't. Those aren't. And so they go, okay, we probably missed that one. No, no, you missed all of them. But the thing is that it's hard to do, right? So I would recommend using things like house wraps and, and things like that. You guys are familiar with Tyvek. Tyvek's a product that's been around for 30 years. It's been wrapped on 9 million houses. It's probably a better product to use to put on the sheathing to protect it from getting wet, flash all your windows and details to it, and then you put your cladding over the top or you put it on rain screens. How many of us are seeing rain screens in the marketplace? What is a rain screen? Anybody know? Rain screen's a product that now separates the cladding from the building. The strategy and the research has shown that if we hold our cladding off the building, it allows the water to drain away quickly and allows airflow to dry the assemblies at 10 to 20 times faster than ever before. Now, when you look at commercial buildings, I was at a job site yesterday, a, a really nicely built um, lodge down south of uh, of a Tacoma, or east of Tacoma, and they did a beautiful job. They put hardy plank panel on the wall, they put vertical furring strips to hold the cladding off the building to allow the paint film to last more than twice as long and make sure that the wall dried effectively. How do you decide which rain strategy you want to make and does it have anything to do with the cladding you choose? Because all claddings perform the same, right? Do any claddings that you know of leak? You would say all of them. 
So if all claddings leak and all of them perform differently, what is your strategy to take a cladding system and apply it to the building assembly? Which strategy would you use? You'd say, if I have a cladding system that's made out of wood, would it behave differently than a cladding system made out of lick and stick cultured stone? Very, very different applications of product. So those are all part of what we want to make sure we do a good job of. Rain screens of now research has shown that uh, about a 3 gap, 10 millimeter gap, provides accelerated drying in wall cavities. A 10 millimeter gap increases airflow behind the, the cladding material, about 40 air changes per hour in a 14 and a half inch wide cavity. That allows the drying to be so aggressive that in the code it now says, when a 10 millimeter rain screen is installed on the outside of the building, you no longer need any interior vapor control. No vapor barriers, no polyethylene. The walls dry so quickly that it allows the drying to occur through the building assembly, you no longer need vapor control. Have any of us been concerned about interior vapor control? It's one of the questions that came up I saw. Where do I put a vapor barrier? Should I use PVA, paint, or should I use polyethylene? How do I understand which assembly I should have that kind of product on? Is there any confusion there at all? It's all over the place, confusion everywhere. Everybody goes, the, the code guy, the local building official said I gotta do that. So how do we make a case for not doing that? Is there any risk at putting polyethylene on the inside of a wall? I think so. Right? If the wall gets wet, is it in trouble? Big trouble. So I have to look at all these things that I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this big overall summary first before we get a little, a little narrower. But the idea is that if we manage rain first, our buildings survive longer. If we then manage moisture, that's the next phase. How do I control that flow of moisture in the assembly? Can wood frame buildings handle some moisture? They're amazing. Wood's an amazing product. Here's a product that can go from 20% moisture content to 8%, varying throughout the year for the next 150 years and hold up beautifully. What an amazing product. Takes on a little bit of water, gives it back up, and it does a great job. In excess of 26% moisture content, it starts to re reach what's called fiber saturation. Exceeding fiber saturation means any decay fungi that lives on the wood begins to grow and provide a, a kind of decomposing the wood because that's all it knows. It has no idea where it is. It thinks it's laying on the forest floor. It has no idea it's been completely shucked of uh, skin and uh, kiln dried. It doesn't know what happened to it. So what happens is now it starts to decay in the wall cavity. So your job is to say, when I'm going to use wood, I'm going to keep it at a moisture content below 20%. Got it? Is that fair? Can we do that? So how do you do that? You manage rain and water better than ever before? Because the wall systems can't handle that water. So when we look at the whole wall assembly, I want to manage exterior rain and water better than you've ever done before. Cladding systems determine how well and how you install weather management. The wall cavity itself being thermally insulated, we do for our clients to be more comfortable and to match the energy code. It also slows down the rate of drying, so that's a challenge too. So now I look at interior. How do I control the vapor on the wall to make sure it doesn't move through the building? So now I got a tighter building. Is there any risk now? I got this house, I've managed the walls, the water, and everything else. Is there any other problem for the home buyer? What would you call it? Mold's just a generation of moisture on a surface that's accelerated its level of moisture content and sits there wet for too long. Don't worry about mold. Mold's been around forever. It's not brand new. Everybody's like, yeah, alien craft drop by, dropped off some mold, kind of screwed our industry ever since, right? Mold's always been here, it will always be there. There's mold spores on all your shirts right now. Get over it. Here's what you do though. 
Mold needs a relative humidity that's high and elevated and a temperature to, do, to, to uh, help it grow. It also needs an organic food source like paper and wood-based cellulosic products to begin growing. It takes about four hours to germinate mold, four days for the germinated mold to produce spores, so that's going to look for other places to find food. Keep things dry, manage the water, you're good to go. Deal? That's it. Now the old mold thing, that discussion's gone. What's the other discussion we have about a tighter building? How does that affect the occupants? Outgassing of, of uh, materials, but really general indoor air quality, right? Is indoor air quality important? How many of you in this room are continuous breathers? Can I get a show of hands? <laughs> so you're going to say that's most of you. So are there any intermittent breathers? That would be people with uh, sleep apnea. That would be an intermittent breather, right? So if you're a continuous breather, how well and how important is it that we give people a continuous supply of fresh air? In 1991, the state of Washington was the first state in the United States to pass a law requiring mechanical ventilation. That's pretty progressive. You guys are amazing. So, how well are we doing that today, in 2015? Not so good. Not so good. Do we have a fairly good idea about how much air people breathe? I got a pretty good idea how much you breathe. About 9,000 liters of air a day. And you're really close to the same. Actually, so are you. If I know that my respiration cycle, I need about seven cubic feet per minute per person to provide an adequate exchange of fresh air. Does that seem like a reasonable number? Seven. I didn't say a hundred, I said seven. So that's called ASHRAE standard 62.2. That standard basically says you need 7.5 cubic feet per minute of air per person, plus some ventilation for the overall building to manage um, exhaust. Um, uh, um, outgassing of products. So do you think we as a group can agree that when you go to a house, remodel it, you work on a project, can we provide a simple strategy to get fresh air into that house? How, what do you think? Can we figure out a way to actually distribute it to where people live? Because where those continuous breathers are hanging out. You ever open the door of a teenager's bedroom after they've been sleeping for 12 hours with the door closed? That room's a problem, right? So the idea is to say, do you want to make sure that my kids, your children, get a steady supply of fresh air relating to the same level in which they breathe. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. Do I need to pass a code for that? Or is that what you do for people? Have you ever come home and said, uh, really, fish again? And you're going to go, oh, no, that was last night. Is that called a tip? <laughs> right? So the idea is there is that how do I understand how much air a building needs? So as every time you touch a building and you improve its performance, whether you replace cladding or you add insulation or you add an addition, are you possibly affecting the indoor air quality of that house? Yes. yes. Should the discussion about indoor environments be part of your dialogue? Should you find out about their lifestyle? Does anybody in your home suffer from asthma or allergies that you would want to make sure I know about? Is that important for you to know? I think that's important for you to know. You maybe be able to have a question or an answer to a problem that they didn't even know they had. So what if you differentiated by saying, you know, what I'm learning as a professional contractor and professional uh, builder, remodeler, I want to make sure I understand your family and your home, the expectations, so I can have the right solution. I noticed downstairs when I, or up over the, the area wherever it happens to be, that the furnace sitting there, it looks kind of tired. So what I'm worried about is that if we fix the kitchen and put the exhaust hood in there, it's probably going to pull the flue gases back down the water, that furnace and water heater, could put it back into the house. And so I'd like to fix that. 
I also realized that if you have a forced air system, we could improve the filtration on that furnace that would allow the air quality of the house to be much better, probably help your son um, reduce the amount of albuterol he's got to take by reducing particulates. Homeowner's like going, whatever you just said makes sense. Like, that's what I am. I'm a professional. I have to know about that stuff before I can make the right choices for your house. So now as we bring in products, does anybody ever have challenges with odors and chemistry? Well, my wife seems pretty, pretty sensitive to some of that stuff. Is there anything we can do about it? Well, actually, there's products on the market today that have lower volatile organic compounds in them. We could use a paint that had fewer VOCs. We probably would want to reduce the amount of carpet that we add. That should improve the overall environment of outgassing. Do you have those answers? Should we all be careful about the sealants we use? You look at the tube of sealant, you go, that's got a skull and crossbones on it. That could be a tip, right? So maybe I should find something a little less nasty to use in the house. So those are all ideas that you want to think about from the outside of the building and managing rain all the way to the inside of the building to make sure we're taking care of the occupants. And that's the knowledge base that helps differentiate you in a marketplace. Understanding your clients better, the technology in the marketplace, products that are available, and solutions to make sure you're extraordinary at what you do. Will that also lower your risk and liability risk and allow you to remember this. This business isn't about how, this business isn't about how much money you make, it's about how much money you keep. keep, right? I hate giving money to lawyers. Anybody else like that idea? The best way to manage that is to understand where our risks lie and make sure we take that risk out of the equation. How do I manage my business well enough to make sure when I get done, my client is incredibly happy in a safer and healthier environment they were in before, and I made a, a, a decent profit, which I deserve? Is that an important strategy? Is that the base strategy you operate on, though? What I want to make sure is that that's how you focus your business, to understand those characteristics. If there's any gaps in that knowledge base, what should you do? Fill them in. Learn about them. That's why you guys are here. Of all the people that got invited in your marketplace, the smartest, brightest, most capable people always show up to learn more. That's you guys. Stephen Covey calls it sharpening your saw, this saw. And that's a pretty cool thing that you take time to do that. So I think looking at all these connections, I tried to throw out kind of a, a big picture of all the stuff that's in front of us. People had written in notes about uh, radiant heat and so on. Are there any questions you guys would like to try to address? I would agree. You know, his question was, in today's marketplace, we have contractors, trade-based folks as well, that have a hard time understanding, first of all, what is an HRV or an ERV, and then how do I put that in? Now, they've been in the market. My first experience with HRVs and ERVs were in 1982. And there were companies that were building HRVs and ERVs. They hadn't built ERVs yet, just HRVs. A, a, a heating recovery ventilation system. What they basically was was a ventilation system that brought in amount of air from outside. At the same time, it removed stale air from the house. In the moving of those two airstreams, they put it across cores that allowed the energy to transfer from one airstream to the other. Pretty basic stuff, right? So how do you put those in? I see such a mess of how they're installed, I can't believe it. How does a heating contractor that his job is to move air around a building not know how to do it well? Have they taken the time and the effort to figure it out? Should they be experts at understanding ventilation? I see people putting in, yesterday I saw it, an eight inch duct in a brand new house, from the gable end of the house to the return side of the furnace. Awesome. 
So when you turn the furnace on, how much air is it going to suck in? A lot, right? Is any of the air conditioned? No. How has it been filtered? Not happening. So how many people are going to be stunningly comfortable with that idea? Not too many. Is it an enormous energy penalty? What a disastrous choice. And I saw it all day yesterday. Okay, so the idea is how do we get somebody trained to do that? Do you think there are programs and uh, online things, probably on YouTube, but there's ways in which finding out how to install those, that equipment. It's basically pretty straightforward. An HRV is basically a box. There's a manufacturer, one's called Venmar. There's Life Breath. There's other manufacturers that made air exchangers. And it's basically a box with two fans. All I gotta make sure is I know how much air do I wanna move, connect the ducts to the right places, seal the seams of the ducts, get a duct from outside to bring fresh air in, not out of the garage or where the car idles or in the dog kennel area, but really a place where you have fresh air from outside if you don't have any move, right? So you bring fresh air into the unit, through the device, and you deliver fresh air where? Where should I put the fresh air that I brought in from outside and recover the energy from? Where would be a good place to put that? Furnace. Could be in the furnace. What if you don't have a furnace? Now where are you gonna put it? You guys ever have any houses that don't have furnaces? All right, so I was thinking, <laughs> I'm going to go to the place where people sleep, and, uh, and I think that's important. If you have a furnace, if I dump the air in the furnace, how does it actually get to the rooms when the furnace doesn't operate? So is there any times here in your marketplace where the furnace doesn't operate? I'd say a lot, right? Your operational cycle is pretty small, right? How about air conditioning? <laughs> Welcome to 2015, right? Uh, you guys had any change in air conditioning? Actually, 25 years ago, the Pacific Northwest had a 25% um, use of air conditioning here. Right now, it's running in excess of 75%. So um, is that climate change or people's expectations? I don't know about the climate change part. I promise you what, people don't like to sweat anymore. And the idea of telling me to sit in front of a fan and wait for, uh, spring, for fall to come ain't working anymore. Okay, so what I want to do in my car, I can adjust my temperature to be exactly what I want. I expect to walk over to a thermostat on the wall and kick that on, shut the doors and say, I want to be at 72. Is that part of the makeup? So if I've got a forced air system that operates based on thermal, thermal needs, one way or the other, is delivering fresh air into the air handler and waiting for it to periodically turn on, sound like an effective ventilation and supply strategy for fresh air? Not really, but here's the idea. If the fan's there and it's connected to the rooms, can I turn the fan on periodically? And how often should I turn it on? A couple times a day? A couple times an hour? What would be fair? So can you calculate that, do you think? If I'm gonna bring a small amount of air, just enough for me to breathe, how often should the air handler run if I want the furnace to put the fresh air around? How often should it run if I'm gonna bring in a small amount? Whenever I'm there, yeah. So if I'm there, I should deliver fresh air. If I'm gone, could you shut it off? Good, but how do I make sure that happens to do that? So they have devices now that connect to the furnace. It's called an air cycler invented at the University of Central Florida. And what it does, it turns the furnace blower on 20 minutes out of every hour. And it checks back to the furnace to see if it ran recently. If the air conditioner furnace recently ran, it goes, we're okay, we already ran. It opens up a damper to outside, brings fresh air in, distributes it to all the bedrooms, and shuts back off, turns the furnace fan back off. Now, is that an expensive strategy? Why? Why would it maybe be an expensive strategy? How much power does the blower motor use? 
You'd say it depends on the blower motor. How big is it? Is it big? Is it a five-ton blower? Does it use 800 watts of electricity? Every time it turns on, do I need a water-cooled device to hang around the side of it? Or does it have a high-performance motor? The new motors are called ECMs. They use 80 watts of electricity. Now, if I brought in outdoor air, put it into the furnace, ran it 10 minutes an hour, and it used 80 watts of electricity, the same amount of a light bulb, does anybody care? Not really. So would that be a good strategy to think about? So when I'm installing an HRV, you might say, here's the deal. I'm going to recover the energy, move about 100 cubic feet of air through the building. As I do that, I'm going to put it before the filter so it filters the air and turn the blower on periodically to put fresh air in the rooms. Or if it's an efficient motor, I'm going to let the blower run on a low speed more often. Does that sound like a good strategy? Now I've got fresh air filtered, delivered to the rooms at a low power rate. Does that sound like good air quality? So now your question is what happens when nobody knows how to do it? Then get installed right, for sure. If it doesn't get installed properly. So the idea is to say, how do I get somebody trained to do that? Do you think there are people in the marketplace knowledgeable enough to figure out how to do that? So you've got to get the manufacturer on the phone, get the installation video that they've already produced, sit down with your heating contractor and say, I need you to watch this and understand that. That's when I need you to then install, give me a price, not go, how much is it going to be? It's a lot. <laughs> it, 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 what do you mean it's a lot? Oh, they're expensive. They're expensive. How much do they cost? It's just a lot. <laughs> so what is the cost of an HRV? Anybody know? The box itself. This is a secret between you and I, and I didn't tell you this. What's the cost of the box? It's about between $800 and $1,100 for a really good quality, decent air exchanger. How much should it cost to install some ductwork and some controls? I'm just saying. Do you think the price is maybe a little higher than it should be? I hear people go, $3,000. I go, $3,000? I'll fly up and do it, right? That'd be awesome. I'll do it for $2,900. How's that sound? Done. That's what we would do, right? So I think it's important for us to appreciate the fact that those are things that should be learned. In Minnesota, 75% of all houses in Minnesota get an HRV or an ERV installed, connected up to the air handler, pressure tested with the blowers running on low speed uh, to allow ventilation and distribution. They got that figured out. It's been, it took a little while, but they got the average price of an installed unit runs between $1,500 and $2,000 installed. So I just gave you the secret, okay? So all I'm encouraging you to do, like everything else you do in your business, be, be knowledgeable about that aspect and be um, careful about pricing structure and help people learn a better pricing strategy. There you go. No, wait, wait, there's one other, yeah. Depends. Whole house fans. Great. His question is, do you run your whole your house fan? Well, it runs. It's on the timer. Yeah. What I want to know is, I'm not a heating guy, but how do I turn that off during the seasons when I have my windows open? I don't need it to work. Then. Yeah. So a whole house fan, as you guys know, there's a couple different versions of this. Um, whole house fan basically is a fan that sits within the conditioned space of the house, connecting it to the attic space. The fans are quite powerful. Some of them are between six and ten thousand cubic feet per minute. When they turn them on and you see birds sucked into the, the screens on the side of the house, that means you need to open up a few more windows, right? The idea here is that as I turn on a fan and blow that up into the attic space, I've got to make sure there's enough capacity in the attic to relieve that air and make sure there's enough open windows in the building to bring it back in. Is it okay here, is it okay to open windows for fresh air and ventilation? Yes. Of course it is. Unless, what? 
Or somebody said cold, raining. What else? Hot. Something else. Smoke. What else you got? Come on. There's a bunch of other reasons you don't open your windows like we used to. Noise. Security. Pollens. Do you think people open their windows today like they used to? No. A lot of things I just told you about. So I got to balance this thing between operating the fan, which is going to pull air through. If you have the fan on in the attic space from between the house and the, and the building, you open up some strategic windows in the house, is that going to do a pretty nice job of moving air in and out of the building? Absolutely. Is it going to bring in everything that's outside? Yes. The, hence the uh, bird uh, slapped up against the screen. So if we're going to do that strategy, does it bring in a lot of pollens and pollutants from outside? Of course it does. They're unfiltered and untaken care of. You might go, I got this. I'm fine. I don't have any allergies. Doesn't bother me a bit. I'm okay. Could it bother other people? That strategy might work for you. It might not work for somebody else. So we want to make sure we appreciate that. That's what I said when I asked the question of what? Does anybody in your family suffer from allergies or indoor air quality issues? Is that a strategy you'd recommend for them? No. You say, you know what? What we're going to have to do is I'd recommend that we just do this and, and take care of that. Turn that off or in the seasons when it's okay and you're okay with the pollens, you can run that, but here's how you have to be careful. Remember, what I'm trying to discuss today is making sure that we are knowledgeable about all facets of the building. As a general rule and general contractors, how much do we have to know about this stuff? More than you want to know. More than you maybe know now. But we got to be the experts. We're considered the general in this overall project. If I bring in a heating guy who doesn't really know what he's doing, in court, is he there with you? You can look around a lot, but he ain't going to be there. So our job is to say, I better understand all these aspects, understand how it affects my clients, and making sure that I'm knowledgeable because when I hire you to do a project for my client, you need to know. So the idea about ventilation and whole house fans, I'm not a big fan of whole house fans because I think that what happens is they operate intermittently. Can you shut them off? The answer would be, of course. What do you need? I'd say a switch, right? Do they make good quality uh, attic fans? Yeah, there's a company called Energy Conservatory. They make a really cool fan. It's got one with these insulated uh, louver doors that are motor actuated. You turn the switch on the thing or the little control on the wall, these louvers drop down and close the fan off. When you want to operate it, it opens up these louvers insulated, turns the fan on, it's reasonably quiet, and it moves the air in up and out of the house. Um, and those are pretty good strategies. In a climate like yours, it's a little easier, right? I spent about three years in, in Arizona. Is that a good place to do that? Nobody would do that down there. It's uh, completely not happening. But in looking at your marketplace, your client, and everything else, can a fan like that help to purge the air in the building? The answer is it can work. There's just obstacles that might make it more difficult to use otherwise. If the windows get closed, is that a problem that the fan's running? Yeah. Now I got a problem. What's the problem going to be? Makeup air. I have the risk of making sure that if the windows get closed for security and noise, but the fan's still running, where is it getting its air from? The path of least resistance. Could it be coming down the fireplace flue? Could it come down a flue of another appliance? Is it getting sucked out of the garage? That's all at risk. So we've got to be careful when we use them. We don't realize it is 10,000, 6,000 CFM a lot. That's huge. Huge amounts of air flow. So be careful. So I guess to that point, we're doing a project right now where they're calling for uh, air intake ducts through the wall in the bedrooms. I'm assuming that's to help with that whole problem of the whole house, man. It's going to let that air come in 
somewhere. Yeah. His question is, um, he's got a project where he's working where a client wants to have a, or their strategy is to put a vent hole in each one of the bedrooms to provide some relief air for air quality. Can that work? They use it in other parts of the world. The Europeans have done a little bit of this, where they put on an exhaust fan and they have a little pop vent. Um, they have it in windows as well, with this little slot diffuser that allows air to trickle in around the window. All interesting strategies. Now, does the air know which way it's supposed to go through the hole? What's the only way it's going to go the direction you want it to go? You have to engineer exactly what you expect. They're called fresh 80s. The, the Scandinavians have made them for a while. They would use them in um, places where there are clothes dryers. There'd be one in the wall. So people would throw the clothes in the dryer, shut the door, and pull the pop vent. It would pop it open and provide fresh makeup air for the clothes dryer. Awesome idea. When they had it here, they go like, Americans won't pull strings for anything. <laughs> right? It's got to be automatic. When I put in the dryer, I'm walking away, and shit just better get figured out. Right? <laughs> So we would need an automatic switch. Um, I had a friend of mine, he, uh, he was working in a house and he told the homeowner they had a basement and there's a forced air system and he's downstairs and he goes, the basement's really cold in the summertime. He goes, well, you gotta adjust the dampers in the basement and close, close off the air conditioned air because in the wintertime, it was blowing the heated air in the basement. In the summertime, the basement's naturally cooled and so you have to close those vents. And the guy goes, he looked look at his wife, he goes, I gotta do that? He goes, my car is completely automatic, and you want me to crawl around with a ladder and close those off seasonally? you got to be kidding me. Like, yeah, I was totally kidding. Uh, <laughs> let's see if we can have, for about a thousand bucks, get some motors to do that, and a switch. He goes, that's what I'm talking about. I want my stereo. When I walk in the door, I want to go, the Eagles, and it just comes on, and those are your expectations. You want to walk in, and you go, fresh air, and things just happen, right? That's kind of where we're going. So the strategy is that if there's a hole in the wall to the bedroom, what do I got to make sure happens in order for air to come in through the vent? Physics-wise, I got to depressurize that room in relationship to the rest of the, the building. So that room has to be depressurized in relationship to the outdoors. A hole through the wall will only bring air in if the pressure across that hole is large enough to make that the primary goal. <laughs> Now, if I have a forced air system in a house, and it's moving air around the house through the ducts, if I shut one bedroom door, and it returns in the hallway, which we like to do here, centralized returns, if I shut the bedroom door, is that room out of balance? Is the house going to suck more air and try to get it out of the bedroom, but the door is closed, right? So how do I make sure that that balance is happening? If I shut the door and the room's got the air handler on from the furnace and it pressurizes the room, which way is the air going to go out through that pop vent? It's going outside. So I go, that wasn't fresh air. That was exhaust air from my furnace or my air conditioner. So we have to appreciate the fact that a passive vent, while it sounds elegant, doesn't work unless you balance the pressures to make it happen. Somebody just goes, just open the slot diffuse in the windows and you're going to be fine. In colder climates, we see icicles hanging outside the vent holes. What is that room under, positive or negative pressure? Positive pressure. It's pushing the air in the room out the vent, freezing and creating icicles. Awesome strategy, right? That's an exhaust port, not a fresh air intake port. So the guys selling the, the fresh air intake ports will tell you that they all work beautifully. Oh, they're amazing. We use them all over the world. <laughs> really? How do you do that? Do you just drill a hole in the wall and you screw the thing in? It's amazing, right? And you're like, well, let's put a couple of those in. 
So when is it going to work? Only when it's designed to operate at the pressure. So you say, well, so what's that vent designed to operate at? It has to be at a tenth of an inch of static pressure under this kind of negative pressure to bring in 20 CFM. And you'd go, huh? Right? So how do I engineer that? Well, you really don't. Um, you'd have to have a house uh, without forced air or a balance between rooms, transfer grills over the doorways, and a depressurization of that room to allow the air to come back in, which probably isn't going to happen, so you might as well forget that idea. It's not very good. That answered my question. Oh, well, yeah. here's a catch. He, uh, and it's a great question. He said, so we're not going to put him in. My, my answer would be, if you're going to do it, you better engineer a solution for it. And what feels like an easy answer to get fresh air into the building might not be so. So that's where I'm always careful about it. And so that's a great question. So I did a similar system, but I had those hydronic heats. There was no forced air system. Absolutely. So if you heard his, his, his comment, he said, they tried doing that in a house with hydronic heat, no forced air. They undercut all the doors in certain areas, increased the capacity on the fan in the laundry room and the first floor to try to balance out the fact that when they tried to suck air out of the building, you wanted to pull most of the air in from a different level. So you had to kind of balance the flows and engineer the, you gotta be kidding me, right? Isn't that what you would think? But can it work? Absolutely can work. The strategy is that if we look at that as the mechanism for providing fresh air for occupants who are continuous breathers, we better figure out and engineer a solution. If we're having a hard time getting a guy to install an HRV, what are the odds the guy's going to be able to engineer the pathways for fresh air? <laughs> I've seen people do it, but it takes a little work. So here's what I want you to remember. Every time there's a solution, you have to push back and say, does it match the laws of physics? Because that's what I'm up here to share with you about. If we understand the pathways in terms of water, Water enters the building through a gap, we know that. Moisture moves with air, transfers back and forth based on pressure. Capillarity sucks water up out of the ground. You can wick water in concrete well in excess of a thousand feet against gravity. So when you put concrete and stone and stuff in the dirt, what's it gonna do? Suck up water, leave the uh, moisture behind, the uh, salts behind, which is called efflorescence, and that's a physics thing. Diffusion is the ability for water molecules to go from a concentration of more to less. Every time we look at those principles of physics, airflow and physics, the better we understand it, the better we make decisions. So when you have a house that's hydronically heated, I put in the vents in the walls, I undercut the doors, I depressurize the building, now I gotta go back and check. I gotta say, now I gotta find out how much air comes. So you have a pressure gauge, and you check the bedroom, and you go, what's the pressure gauge in the bedroom running? It's running at two pascals, awesome. Let's go to the next room, two pascals, Six, okay, I should fix that room. What's this room operating under? This is at nine pascals, this is at a plus five. Do I have a problem? Yeah, you're like, well, we gotta get it balanced. So you have somebody come in, understands how to balance, you walk away and you go, now, as long as you don't open or close any doors, we're good to go, right? So what he did is open and, and undercut the doors, large enough so a small animal can get underneath, and we should be good to go. Because people are really cool about having a big hole under their door, I think it's awesome. But all I'm saying, and I'm being a little facetious about this, but I want you to think about it, is that every time we look at those solutions, our job as an industry is to maintain the fact that the more we know, the better we're able to make the right choice for our customers and share that, because they're hiring us because we're what? Experts. Experts. You guys are professionals at this. Profession is at much more than running a business, which is a great enough challenge as it is. 
as products come into the marketplace, you have to be the people that distill the solution as to whether it's the right thing for your customer and where it fits, not them. You have to help decide that. And that's what's really important. It's hard to do, but you guys are getting better all the time. The fact that you're here, we're talking about it today, that's important. Sir. Run. Yeah. <laughs> Great question. His question was that we're talking about this today, and I think that uh, he said, where do you go next? There's places that you can go to learn this stuff, and, and some of it, thanks, thanks to the internet, all opens up some opportunities. There's a place that you can go, there's, I don't, some of you guys, there's an app that's available. One's called Construction Instruction, it's free. We kind of worked on one of those. It's free app. The idea was to say about six years ago, people would say, how do I get this stuff? We go, I don't know. Go to YouTube, right? And by the time you get done watching the first thing on building science, you find yourself watching stupid pet tricks because that's pretty cool. It comes up on the right side, and all of a sudden we're somewhere else. It's part of our ADD culture. Um, but the idea is that how do we learn that stuff? There's videos on building science from Building Science Corporation. There's a company in the East Coast. They've been around for a long time. If you went to buildingscience.com, they have a phenomenal array of books. It's, it's, it's the format that you like to learn in. Some people prefer to read, read about stuff. BuildingScience.com is a host of books on building technology. All of you should own a book called The Builder's Guide for Mixed Climates. It's about 30 bucks. It's about uh, 400 pages written by a fellow named Dr. Joseph Stebrick. I have nothing to do with the books other than to tell you they're amazing. And the books were written a while ago. They've been updated. You guys are considered a mixed climate. There is a version that's supposed to be out in the next year called The Builder's Guide to Marine Climates. So that book is being worked on, the marine climate version. So there's cold, hot, uh, mixed humid, and humid. Those are the four versions that currently exist now. So you should get one of those. And you can periodically read through it. Put it next to your bedstand, read a page, you'll be out, okay? Uh, it's like, uh, it's better than ambient. Just pull, uh, it'll take you a year to get through the book, but it'll be awesome. Uh, actually, it's pretty well written. Um, there's other uh, publications you get. If you want to, like I said, the, the app's called Construction Instruction. Android, um, uh, the iOS platform, you can read it on your iPad, there's videos on building science, four minutes long, articles that have been vetted, pretty easy stuff. You pull it up on your iPad and you can read stuff about it. And it references things, it's called construction instruction. The other stuff, buildingscience.com is another one. There's conferences that happen on building technology, but I'll be honest with you, it's a, it's a, really, it's a really aggressive approach that you have to take to learn about it. And then you also have to learn about it, read about it, and then distill right wrong between the information. But I will tell you that there's a lot of good stuff on there. Anybody uh, participate in LinkedIn? LinkedIn is kind of a big thing for people nowadays. If you go to LinkedIn, there's a building science page. There's a building science page where people post stuff about building science. So go on there and look at some of the posts, read some of the articles, but we're gonna have to kind of take that next level of, a, of knowledge and training gap. And I, I sure, and I encourage you the fact that you guys are here, way to go. Uh, just doing that just wrecked the poor guy in the uh, microphone, I'm sorry dude. His uh, earphones just went like that when I did that. Um, but I think those are important things. Um, yes, sir. So why is there no inclusion of architects and engineers in this presentation? That's a great question. He asked really why is there no inclusion of architects and engineers? I'll share a little story with you. A good friend of mine who's the uh, professor at the University of Champaign-Urbana School of Architecture, his name is Dr. Bill Rose, phenomenal guy. Dr. Rose spent about 30 months looking at the architectural colleges in the United States to find out which architectural schools taught building science. And his answer was, none of them. Zero. Is that amazing? That I can be an architect and know very little about building science. Now is that changing? 
Yeah, there are now schools nationwide, Penn State, a bunch of other colleges, that are starting to create curriculum called the Curriculum of Building Science. Architects are now either build, uh, hiring um, professionals like uh, water management consultants, engineers, those kind of people to bring into their firms to help do that. Are some of you guys hiring consultants? Be careful about that though, just want to share with you. Consultants can cost you a lot of money. The perception is that they protect you from risk. The answer is they don't. Learn what they know, understand the science behind them, and then integrate that into your business. I had to build a very, very large national building. They do enormous commercial projects in San Diego. He said, I got a water management consultant for $40,000 on below grade and $40,000 for above grade. I go, so when are you gonna learn how to do it so you don't have to hire them anymore? And he goes, I didn't really think of that. I thought I was just hiring them to always consult. I said, you gotta figure out a way to learn that internally and make that happen. Architects in a, in a, in a, as a whole aren't doing as much of that as they should. I know some very good architects that are trying to incorporate that into their business, but I'll tell you what, there's a pretty big gap. As long as it's a beautiful building, it's your job to make sure it works. It's a big risk. I'm an awesome. Awesome. Very, very good. So if you guys are interested, I would really recommend that. that, that How do they find out about that? Um, I could probably email that. that is, there a web, is there a website they can go to? Or? Here's, here's what you can do. Buildingscience.com is Joe's website. And um, you can go on there, and it's got a little area called uh, um, uh, uh, classes or training. And if you go there, it'll show you where Joe's going to be. And have any of you seen Joe speak? Yeah, he's a very bright, brilliant scientist. He cusses like a sailor, so be prepared for that. But he's brilliant, and uh, he's been a good friend of mine for a very long time. He's as good as they get. You go to a seminar like that, you'll walk out of there laughing and um, offended and uh, knowledgeable at the same time. So it's a good thing to do. I just want to prepare you for that, that's all. Joe's a tremendous, uh, tremendous resource. He's the one that wrote those books as well. So if you get a chance to go to class, it'll be a great investment. It's a long time to put into it, but it'll be worth it. Um, somebody, and, and also just on the architecture side. I just want you to know that it's a fairly complex thing. Would you say buildings have gotten more complex? So can I grab a piece of your yellow paper? Just give me a blank one, yeah. I just want you to think about a couple of things. Now, here in this marketplace, thank you, sir. I don't need the pen, you can keep that. Yeah, I'm gonna use that visual. So, if I looked at buildings, remember the day when buildings looked like this? Anybody remember that? There's actually houses that had roofs that were about like that. There's research that's been done that said, houses with overhangs have less water problems. Now, I'm sure that was paid for a fairly large grant from the US government, which all of us took care of, and that uh, was along studying the mosquito. But I, I would say, I just want you to think about this. Here's the roof on houses. Now, what do they look like today? Okay, so you get a plan, and it looks like this, right? And you go, <laughs> no kidding. Uh, and then what do we say? Yeah, I could probably do that. Uh, I bet they make a truss just like that, right? <laughs> we also have houses here that have what kind of roofs? This one. So I got one of these babies, and of course they don't leak, so they're awesome, right? So uh, here's an area that I, I, drive, I fly over. Every time I fly outside, I drive, fly overseas, LA and stuff like that. You'll see the roofs are all full of blue tarps. I'm like, <laughs> that's a tip, right? <laughs> so in commercial buildings, they'll take all the equipment, they put it in the middle of the building, 
all the curving comes up in the center of the building so that when the building eventually, uh, the lumber sh uh, shrinks a little bit, it settles down so that most of the water can attract itself to the curving, waiting for a gap in the roof membrane. Isn't that amazing? Now, I think there's a concept called sloping. I'm not sure. Where you can actually take a flat roof and pitch it, leave the parapet looking the same, collect the water and get it off the building, and make sure that it's a big enough slope that it actually works. Not a one quarter and one half of 12. This is not a pitch, you know? So I think it's important for us to appreciate the fact that, you want that back? It's, that's okay. Um, so that's the overall idea. So with the architecture, I want to make sure we appreciate this. When you look at a plan and you've got to go like this, that's a tip. But when you look at it and say, how am I going to make this work thermally, um, structurally, and managing water? I had a project in North Carolina where they had a very complex roof structure. They had this beautiful deck that was kind of put into the house, a bedroom underneath it. And I said, have you ever calculated how much water all those three roofs dump on the deck? They go, uh-uh. I said, let's try. So we figured out the rain data for that area of North Carolina and found out that 1,500 gallons of water in a two and a half inch rainfall will end up on the deck. Oh, Is that a lot? <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. Should we just put in gutters? <laughs> that should work fine, right? So the idea was, they said, you know, we really never thought about that. Maybe we should make sure that there's a, more, there's a larger space under the deck, has a greater pitch, we add more scuppers, and we, uh, there's the way we have to be thinking. All of that stuff, you guys get enough rainfall here to make sure that's part of the decision process. Think about that roof, that line, where's it gonna dump? How am I gonna manage that? That's our job. Because if all the water dumps on the front sidewalk when people come in, are they gonna have a problem with that? And is a little four inch gutter gonna take care of it? Your answer would say no, no. Any, any other questions? Now, Jim, you wanted to do a raffle. We had a couple features and benefits customers seen value in, and then yeah. differentiate a little bit of the sales process, and then take a Okay, we got a couple of that. We'll just kind of review. Now, how about green? Where are we at with green? Green. It's a color. Yeah. Where are you guys at with blue? No. So, green. So how do we look at green? Do you think you have customers that are interested in something to do with green? What does green really represent? What's the intent? Sustainability, Sustainability environmental responsibility. Are those things important? Yes. Sure. So the definition of those things are to say their impact on the overall connection to planet has an impact and that's important. Remember one thing about green. Be careful not to chase points. Okay? So if you're trying to get to a super duper logo and a sticker on the wall, be careful about that, because there's a whole process there you have to watch. Thermal efficiency, building durability, products that go into buildings, make sure that an energy efficient building, is that a green building? Is energy efficiency green? Yes. Of course it is, right? In the overall premise, we know that if we have energy reduction and energy use, that's beneficial. Is a durable building green? Yes. If it rots and ends up in a landfill, not so green. That seems fair. Is a healthy building green? I think so. If the occupants are healthy, that's probably better for everybody in the environment as well. So if the building is healthy, safe, durable, efficient to operate and maintain affordably, is that a green building? So that's what I think. I think if we build really good buildings that are durable and safe, now you can say, well, you know what? <clears throat> I want a countertop made out of concrete and crushed glass. I'm like, cool. They look awesome. Do you like that? Yes. Why are you doing it? Because I need six points. Okay. Um, that's what I'm saying. Uh, why did you screw a bike rack to the front of a house when no one rides a bike? 
because I got four points. That's the problem I have with point chasing. So always be careful about making sure that choices for green are based on the right stuff. If your client says to you, I want to build a lead house, you'd say lead what? Uh, what color? Lead gold, platinum, emerald. What color do you want? Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I can get you a lead platinum house, probably add thirty dollars to $40,000 the price of the project, depending on what you want to do with it. And um, I'll get you a logo, and you can screw that right to the wall of the house, and people will be amazed. Put it by the front door, because you spent a lot for it, and um, screw that to the wall. I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm just saying make sure you appreciate what it means and what it does. If people want it because they just want to talk about it and I want to have that, awesome. Um, if you're, if you could say, for $5,000, I can build you the same product without the sticker, right? Or the green guys get really pissed at me for saying that. And they're like, hey, that's not fair. I'm saying, sure it is. It's America. So the idea is to say, make sure you understand what you're trying to accomplish. If somebody wants a lead platinum house and they want the sticker, go for it. Fill out the paperwork. Go through the details. Use it as a marketing package for your company. We build lead platinum houses. It's going to be a little more expensive, but you're going to really dig the experience. That's what I want you to make sure you do. Put it into perspective. These aren't being required. They're being offered. Options are good, right? Guys like options, right? So that's green as far as the overall process goes. Um, the other thing was in terms of uh, communication and marketing, a little bit to your buyers. Make sure, as I mentioned earlier, don't forget to ask them about their expectations. Tell me a little bit about the, the house you're living in now and what you'd like to see changed. What kind of things are you frustrated with? Are there any things about maintenance, any other previous houses you've had that have had some problems that you want to avoid? And when you get somebody, once you understand all the expectations of a client, you then match your business and what you want to do to that. Not telling them what you think they should do, listening to what they want you to do and managing that. Too many people go in and they tell them what they're gonna do and how they're gonna do it, and people go, I don't know if I want that or if I'm happy with it at the end. I had a friend of mine, her name is Sarah Sasanka. She's an architect who kind of came up with a premise called the Not So Big House Book. She's a good friend of mine. Sarah said that she had designed houses, and she said I'd walk in and they had great big ceilings and huge chandeliers hanging out the ceiling, and people walked in and go, well, that's cool, but I don't really feel comfortable here. Doesn't make me feel very good in space, so what we do is spend all of our time in that room over there that's a little smaller with the couch because that's where we really want to be. What she realizes is that we don't spend enough time talking to people and clients about their expectations of how they use space and the way they live and then making sure that's part of how you help shape what they're trying to do. It's oftentimes what architects do. Oftentimes architects do that and sit down with them and go through. Tell me what you're trying to accomplish, what you want, and design around that. Is that fair? I just had to make sure that I make peace with architects because otherwise you get done and poked right in the eyes, you know. Uh, are there any other questions that you have around that? Understanding your needs and understanding the science and the, and the physics behind that. Uh, um, last one is about differentiation a little bit. How do you differentiate in the marketplace? Can what we just talked about today help you differentiate from a competitor that's even more uh, less expensive? That's the art in this game. It isn't the price. Have you ever had somebody say, well, what's the approximate cost per square foot? Have you ever had that? Isn't that an awesome thing? Just go, I bet you bought your car by the pound recently, didn't you? Right? You don't go to somebody and go, hey, I'm looking at the Audi A6. What does that uh, cost per pound? <laughs> just go try that. Go to the Audi dealer and just try that. The guy's going to go, huh? You're like, yeah, no, I'm looking at the A6, and I'm looking at BMW 3 Series. Now, the 3 Series is running about 46 bucks a pound. You're at about $62 a pound. Just not seeing it here. <laughs> What's the guy going to do? Uh, our bumpers, they're thicker. Uh, it's heavier. Seriously. So when someone says, what's your price per square foot? You would say, it's a really irrelevant measurement. And here's why. 
if you want linoleum counters, I mean, uh, for mica counters, linoleum floors, you want really cheesy cabinets, and the cheapest tile we can find, I can get you a low price per square foot. Is that what you're looking for? Well, not necessarily. So then let's forget that number. Let's find out what you want. Tell me about the house you want to live in, how you want it to look and feel, and then we'll talk about the house. Because it doesn't make any sense to attach square foot pricing to somebody. So somebody gives them that. I, I remember I said that to a group of builders, and I got, <laughs> it's the honest truth. I go out to the parking lot and there's a pickup truck. It says, lowest cost per square foot. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> I'm sure that guy's pissed at me right now. But the idea is to make sure that when clients don't know how to shop, does that seem like a logical way for them? They don't know. They're like going, you're uh, 147,000 for this remodeling. You're at 142. I think I should go with you because that seems like a good economic decision. Is that fair though? Yeah. Absolutely. They don't know. They look at it, if you take this plan, whatever it is, and all of the specs, and I bid to that, does that seem logical to take price? And I'd say, absolutely it does. If you went and you're looking at a Chevy Suburban, you go, that one over there at that dealership, exactly equipped, is that price. And there's another one over here, exactly equipped, at a higher price. If they're exactly the same, logically, which one should you pick? The lower price ones. But you'd say, the guy would go, wait, wait, here's a catch. If you have any problems with your car, here's what I do. I'll come to your office, I'll pick it up. I'll drop off a loaner. We'll fix the car, we'll wash it, and re-deliver it back to your office. Does that have any value to you? Yes. You'd say, absolutely, I want that. So will you pay a little more for that? Of course. In the absence of value, you will always pick price. So if you're not able to define the difference of what value means, you lost the opportunity. So the discussion about learning about them, their project and their goals, helps to now establish value, because now what you're going to say is, it looks like the project we're working on, you want to make sure that we have better air quality. So we're going to add a little filtration package for your family. Your son's got asthma and you've got some allergies, let's work on that. The indoor environment, sounds like when I came in, it smelled like broccoli, you told me it was three days ago, I think we need some fresh air. So you walk through this exercise and say, this sounds like what we want to do. Now if you wanted to pull out the fresh air for your family, we could get you a discount on that. I sure wouldn't encourage you to do that. But if you'd like to get rid of some of that energy efficiency stuff so you have to pay a higher utility bill, we could do that. You see how that works? What we do is we build, design the house and go, oh now, did you want it to be like energy efficient? You're like, uh, as long as it meets code. See, nobody will pay for it. I'm like, that was a whole wrong approach. Would you like me to pull the insulation package I put in there to get you to the minimum level possible so that you had the most energy expense you can have? See that strategy? Do you want a tight house? I don't want a house that's too tight. Would you like a house free from drafts? That's the one I want. See the difference? It's all about how we listen and help them understand that, that relationship. So we got a couple more quick, quick things. What we got is I just want to make sure you realize that there was a few questions that were called and I'm going to read through them very quickly and we'll find out if it was a bit, uh, something we need to cover. Somebody said radiant heat and the cost versus different options. Is radiant heat a good option? Yes, what are the benefits to radiant heat? Lower air temperature. Lower air temperature can be base it? Does it improve comfort at all? Yeah. Sure can. What are the disadvantages? Air circulation. No air circulation. It's a little slower to respond. A little slower to respond? A little more expensive. Does that sound fair? Do I give you any direction? No, pick. Okay, here's a catch. You do radiant heat, you're doing it for comfort, and maybe, and maybe another feature. What are the things you have to add to it? Ventilation, fresh air, more distribution. If you're gonna put radiant heat in, you're gonna to have to put fresh air in the bedrooms. Do that, all right? 
Or if you want to have the open ports in the walls as a strategy, you can have hydronic heat, a fan that sucks air out, and strategizing to make sure the fresh air is pulled in through the openings. But you have to put fresh air when you don't have ventilation. What also don't you have? Filtration. So if you wanted a filter on the furnace that reduced dust, you're not going to have that with hydronic heat. So you're going to have to want to decide, does somebody have an air quality issue? They go like, yeah, I have a kind of respiratory thing I want. I don't like forced air. All right, we're going to do is put in a HEPA filter system, which is a box and a blower, put dedicated vents around the building to filter the air collectively to make sure you have fresh filtered air. Do you think they want to do that? Yeah. Do you think they expect that? Should that be part of the discussion about hydronic heat? Yes. Yeah. It's awesome, but here's the things you want to make sure. Does that matter? Oh. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. I hate dusting. Uh, dust is a big deal to me. I want to put something better in that works better. Uh, so that's the idea. What's the best ROI for a homeowner? Oh, go ahead. I just had a quick question sure. about the, the ventilation and, yeah. and uh, filtration. I retrofitted and put hydronics in my house. And in getting rid of the forced air system, the dust is way less. So why do you need to add a, a, you know, another filtration system with, when you have hydronics, yeah, but where's the origination of the dust? If I got dust blown into the forced air system, where'd it come from? All over the damn place. What's the problem with forced air? The ducts leak. It makes a lot of sense to put forced air ducts in an attic. That's a brilliant idea. We're still doing that today. Yeah, it's only 120 in the attic. So what I want to do is to pay electricity, cool the air down to 54 degrees, run it up in the attic where it's 120 to warm it up a little bit, and then deliver that uh, conditioned now tempered air to my clients. Also on a hot sunny day, before the air conditioner is turned on, I want to first blow 120 degree air out of the ducts and reheat the house. That's called a really dumb idea, right? So if you had a duct, and you sealed the seams, like you're supposed to do by code, and you connected it to the air handler with a filter on it, could I distribute fresh filtered air and not have any dust? The dust has to have an origination. Do you guys produce any dust? Yeah. Not only from skin, but from walking in the front door. How many of you guys walk all over your house with your shoes on all the time? Some people do, some people don't. The Japanese will tell you that you take your shoes off at the door because it improves the indoor environmental air quality. So if somebody said, I got shoes are coming in the door, the windows are open, don't tell me hydronic heat is any less dusty. What I will tell you is, forced air systems exacerbate the fact that if you've got a lot of dust, leaky ducts, and it's all over the place, it is going to blow it around. What are the odds that there's a ton of crap in the ducts? I look at that and I go, there's chunks of drywall laying in the ductwork. So when you turn that on, is it going to blow for the next 20 years little amounts of sheetrock all over the house? Of course it is. So is the problem forced air or is the problem dirty ducts? So should we, if we install the ducts, seal them carefully, block off the vents during construction, and then clean the ducts afterwards. If you had clean ducts and good filtration, could you have a house that had no difference in dust than a house that was hydronically heated? I just want to put it into perspective. I like the idea of having air that could possibly move around at a low flow rate that's properly filtered. I have a house in Minnesota. It has a, a very high efficiency ECM motor with a four inch pleated filter and a secondary HIPAA filter mounted onto the air handler. No dust, forced air, operates on low speed. Remember that we have to appreciate the fact that hydronic didn't solve the dust problem. Hydronic had the particles that are now where? So if you didn't deal with anything with the dust and all you did is switch systems, where did the dust go? And you could say whatever was in the air now, probably less because the ducts were full of crap, now it's going to sit on the floor. So I'm in a vacuum. How important is it the vacuum 
actually is well done so it doesn't blow the particles out of the bag. Most of the particles blow out the side of the bag. When you see HEPA filters in bags and air con and, uh, close, I mean, uh, vacuums, the uh, studies that were done and said most of the small respirable particles are blown out the side of the bag. So if the particles settle to the floor, which some of them do, vacuuming and puts more up into the air. So I just want us to make sure we're balanced. I like hydronic heat. I like the benefit is. I just want to make sure I appreciate the pros and cons that it doesn't solve one problem that might be there. If the ducts were dirty and you cleaned all the ducts, capped off and sealed them, I guarantee you the dust levels would have gone way down. But I really like your vision and promise, uh, premise there. Very important. I just always want to make sure we put the right, right text to it. Anybody else? Sir. No. Probably not. I mean, it's pretty difficult to get the volume of air that you're looking for to subtly be moved in and out of the building in any other fashion. Uh, unfortunately, so far we need to make sure that this volume of air, air behaves like a fluid. Just remember that. Air behaves like a fluid. Whenever I'm sitting on an airplane going down the runway, I already agreed that I'm sitting on something bid, built by low bid, right? I've already agreed to do that. So I'm just really hoping all this physics stuff is going to hang out there and this stuff in the air is going to hold up this incredibly heavy airplane. Isn't that always kind of a little weird? Like going, really? Really go fast enough and somehow I'm going to float. This is weird. So air behaves like a fluid. When the air is moving through the duct, it's behaving like a fluid. So I like to put this back at you. How tight do you like your plumbing? <laughs> you don't tell the plumber, hey, get it close. <laughs> you want me to pressure test the plumbing? No, just get it tight. It's good. I'm good. So should duct work and distribution systems be incredibly tight? They should be sealed as if they're water. Um, so I think the idea is to say, mastic the joints. I have a lot of heating guy goes, who cares if the air leaks around? I'm like, I care. Because if it leaks over here and over there and over there, it doesn't get to the other end, which I wanted it to get to. So I can have systems that are smaller in diameter, getting the right amount of air if the ducts are sealed. If I've got a really leaky ducts, how big a fan do I have to have? Really, really big. If you had a pump and you were trying to pump water down the hose and it was full of holes, how big a pump would you need to get enough air water at the other end? Big pump, right? So I think about it in terms of how do you manage airflow and distribution paths? And I think that's really important. We can find a way to get air into a building and out of a building and condition it very inexpensively with very small amounts of air as long as we build the building enclosures efficient. The systems in this marketplace are so oversized I can't even tell you. Two times the size they need to be. Every time you improve a window's performance and you improve the wall insulation, what should happen to the size of the heating and cooling system? Way down. The heating guy goes, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm like, your technology is different, right? I go to houses, I was one yesterday, two three-ton air conditioner units and air handlers into a house that was 3,000 square feet. I said, that is the sizing methodology, 400 uh, square feet per ton, that we used 25 years ago. This house has blown-in insulation, high-performance glass, five air changes per hour. You could get by with four tons instead of six. Is there a cost savings? Will it work better? So that's what's happening today. So we've got to make sure we're keep concentrating on that part, that part of it. Anybody else? Any other questions? A couple more quick ones. Someone said, I'm interested in different ways to maintain energy efficiency and fresh air. We've covered that. I'm interested in air sealing versus vapor barriers, vapor sealing. Do you want to seal the vapor in a building? You have to decide. The answer would be kind of. You'd say, I don't want to seal it with vapor barriers. I want to seal it with air barriers. 
So there's a difference between airflow. If I grabbed a handful of air right now, I'm going to tell you, in my hand right here is air at about 70 degrees with relative humidity of about 50%. See? So here's the catch. This invisible stuff, this air, it kind of behaves like a fluid, as it moves through, through and around the building, carries that moisture with it. If I've got a wall assembly that's insulated, and I've got an OSB sheathing on the outside on a colder day, let's say it's 30 degrees, you guys ever get that cold? So if the outside of the sheathing is 30, and the wall's insulated, the back side of the sheathing is also 30, roughly, 32, 33. If the moisture from the house gets through the wall and hits that sheathing, what's it gonna do? Condense. Condense. So do I need to control vapor? Yes. yes. Do you wanna make it using a vapor barrier or an air barrier? Now I'm gonna tell you, you can transport more moisture in airflow than you can through diffusion. Math, math equation. Through a one inch diameter hole, through an entire heating season, I can transport 14 pints of water through a one inch diameter hole. Vapor diffusion on the other hand, through a four by eight sheet of gypsum, through an entire season, molecule by molecule, trying to get through the wall, I can move one quarter of a pint. So what matters more? The vapor barrier trying to stop the molecules running through, or the seal around the outlet box that blows the water in the wall? Don't worry about the interior vapor barriers or vapor control on the walls. Care about how it penetrates the building. Also care about pressure. Does a bathroom have a positive or negative pressure when the air handler comes on and the door is closed? No returns in bathrooms, right? So I got a shower going, full of moisture, shut the bathroom door, pretty normal approach. The air conditioner, the furnace comes on. Is that room pressurized or depressurized? It's pressurized. So if that air is pressurized and it drives out of the building, could that be a problem? You just go, where's it gonna go? So vapor control and air control are your biggest challenges. Control airflow. Why do I want tight buildings? So they don't leak air. I can control a building that's tight. I can't control a leaky building. Leaky buildings are a disaster. I don't know where the air's coming, sucking it out of the garage, pulling it out of the attic, out of the crawl space. How, how about that? You guys want your air out of the crawl space? That's awesome. Take the attic access, the, the uh, crawl space access, stick your head in there and go, awesome. Right? So if you have a bug problem in the crawl space, what do you do? You call the bug guy. He comes in in a Darth Vader suit spraying poison in your crawl space, right? And he's all wrapped, so you go, so you go uh, uh, when can I turn the furnace back on? As soon as I get to the car, right? <laughs> so that doesn't make sense, right? So if you look at the overall building assembly, we really got to keep our eyes on how those buildings work and how they succeed and fail. So in the end, safe, healthy, durable, and efficient, affordable to operate, affordable to maintain, aesthetically pleasing, and sustainable in design. That's kind of the premise that we're trying to accomplish as an industry. I don't care about stickers, I don't care about logos, I don't care about codes. I care about doing the right thing for the person. If I built a house like I just described, would that exceed the code and exceed all the expectations of these green programs? So do that. Build really good buildings and you will exceed the code. Don't make the code drive you to change. Is that fair? Yeah. Lastly, I want to thank um, ORPAC, the young gentleman at the table over there. We have Lance and Eric and Todd. These guys represent DuPont Tyvek. Um, they're awesome. They live here. If you wanted any of them to come out to your site, walk through an installation of details like window flashing and something else. Some of you guys have probably seen a product like this. This is called FlexRap for flashing windows. Invented about 10 years ago by a doctor named Dr. Tracer Weston. Brilliant. 
She created a way of putting a, rubber, a, a butyl flashing, butyl adhesive, on the back side of a flex, flexible substrate. What it allowed her to do is to take that product so that I can do this with it. Stretch it twice its original size. Now some of you guys are thinking, now I can just buy half as much, right? <laughs> but the idea is that this flashing, I was at a job site yesterday and I showed a guy how we could go around and two-dimensionally do a corner and wrap it around a window and flash the window properly. That's pretty cool. You should use things like that to demonstrate that. Here's a window on an install where you see Tyvek's got a product called Drain Wrap. It's got grooves that accelerate the drainage 100 times faster than flat wrap. It allows vapor permeability so that if water gets behind it, it dries back through. The window's been flashed at the bottom, window's installed, the back side is caulked to seal to the inside, like that. Now this window allows whatever moisture hits the sill, drains onto the Tyvek, nothing but net. So pan flash your windows, flash it with beetle tape, lay the top over, and now you've got a window that when it leaks, it leaks out. Lastly, there's door flashing where you can put it on uh, brick mold doors, and there's a way of flashing a brick mold door. They're hard to flash. Yeah. They're really big leakers. Tupac came with an idea where the door's laying down on the ground before you stand it up. You take the adhesives off the one side like this, so just this is like an adhesive tape. You put that against the, uh, the jam, add onto the brick mold. Then you take the door and you stand it up in place. But before you do that, on the other side, the opposite direction, you pull the adhesive back and stick it to the building. I've now created flashing on a brick mold door that keeps it from leaking water. So that's the idea. Lastly, on the rain screen stuff, this is what a rain screen is. It's a fluted batten that you put on the wall, putting the siding on, allowing airflow to go back and forth or vertically, and you just attach your siding through it. So you put a house wrap on, put that over the top, and attach your siding. So that's called a system. One of the things that DuPont does is they create a system of flashing and materials that fit, that fit together. You want to make sure you're not grabbing one of that, grabbing one of those, and grabbing one of those. If you do what he just showed you on that, I showed you on that window, DuPont gives you a 10-year labor and material warranty for 10 years against water leaks. If I were you, I'd go, I'm going to take my, window, my warranty risk on window installations and give it to a $40 billion company. I don't want it. So do that. Pick Tyvek, get rid of that black paper silliness, and because um, it doesn't work. I'm just being honest with you. I don't care about product stuff. It doesn't work, so don't do that. And make that part of your scheme. So that's the folks from DuPont. Uh, Todd and Eric over there, they'll come out to your sites. They'll walk through. It's part of their job. It's free. Say, would you come out, bring a box of that stuff, and show my team how to do that? Certify the installers, whether they're siders or, uh, or window guys, and they'll take care of that. It's just their job. It's, they'll do it for free. They live here. Um, they'll give you a card if you'd like. Dunn Lumber, awesome co company. How long have you been around? Uh, since 1907. 1907, so the dude looks good for that. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I'm gonna drink whatever it is you're drinking. Um, but Dunn Lumber's been a phenomenal partner, as you guys know, it's why you're here. As a company really focused on doing the right thing, providing educational information, and really being your partner in the marketplace, you don't find, and I haven't found in all the people I've traveled with, uh, nicer people than these guys. So what they did is they partnered with people to say, let's talk about this in a forum and let's do more of it. And I just want to make sure that we thank Orpac and Dunn for today. I thought it was pretty cool.